following sermon is made available by Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America, located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. Boys and girls, the marvels of God's creation really are wonderful. And in fact, you've experienced it this week. You've been outside at night. Because this week, outside at night, there was this roar, right, going on in all of our yards. Did you hear the roar this week at night? Hmm? Those are cicadas. Now, what's interesting about a cicada, it's not like a firefly that comes out every night, every summer. The cicadas live inside trees, and they come out only every 13 or 17 years. So the cicadas that we heard this week have been sleeping in a tree for 13 or 17 years. And that's amazing. But then we have to ask the question, why? Why does God make this little bug that lives in a tree, on the sap of a tree, and leaves it in there for 13 or 17 years? And guess what? We don't know why. And there's very much about God's creation that we do not know why. Increasingly, we plumb the depths of the universe, looking for its boundaries, um, deciphering many different things, but all of that investigation cannot answer the question, why? Nothing of all the resources of men can answer the question, why, when it comes to what God does and is doing. All the money in the world cannot buy the answer to why. It might get health, but even money cannot buy you answers to life's problems. It might put you in the couch of a therapist and you'll quickly learn that all you've done is waste your money. Why? You see, that is the great question, really, of the book of Job, isn't it? It's the question right from the beginning because Job doesn't know why what's happening in his life. Now, his friends think they know why, and they're absolutely wrong. So we're coming now uh, to this section before the very last speech of Job. There's two speeches here, 27 and 28, and then 29 to 31, both introduced in the same way as, as something of parables, proverbs, that Job is giving. Now, there are many writers that suggest that Chapter 28 doesn't belong here, or was not at least was not written or said by Job. They'll say it's inspired, but that somebody else put it here uh, in this text. And they say that because in their minds, it doesn't seem to flow from the flow of the book of Job. But just stop and think for a minute. What's going on in the book of Job? Job's friends think they have wisdom. They claim to be spokespersons for God. And they believe they know exactly what God is doing in the life of Job. And you know that simplistic answer. Job must be a very grievous sinner for God to be doing in his life what he's doing. Job knows that is not the answer because he knows his own conscience. Even though he's a sinner saved by grace, he knows in his conscience that which God has testified about him, that he's an upright and and a blameless man who fears God and turns away from evil. So their answer to why is not good. But in Job's conundrum, his problem is he doesn't know why either. But he's beginning to get his feet on the ground. 
So in chapter 27, again asserting his righteousness, in most of that chapter, he now gives a very detailed description of what we refer to as God's retributive justice. Now he's tried to, to teach these men that God doesn't always exercise that justice in a person's life. Sometimes there's judgment in this life. What Job wants us to know that God is the just judge and will always exercise his judgment. And if not in this life, it's surely going to be exercised in eternity as God punishes the sins of people. He ends that discourse with hell and turns now to reflect about wisdom and its unsearchableness and then where we might find it. So that's what he does in chapter 28. The first uh, 22 verses that we consider this morning is the unsearchable character of wisdom. And then tonight we're going to look at that very short paragraph and see the source of wisdom, which is what we, as well as Job, so greatly need. So as Job wrestles in with the reality of what God is doing, as he's asking why, he kind of gets his feet on the ground with this explanation, and that is that God's wisdom is unsearchable. God's wisdom is unsearchable. It's beyond man's ingenuity. It's beyond man's grasp. God's wisdom is beyond man's ingenuity. It's beyond man's grasp. And that's the two things that we're going to look at in these 22 verses. That God's wisdom is beyond man's ingenuity. God's wisdom is beyond man's natural grasp. Well, in verses 1 through 12... The Holy Spirit teaches us that God's wisdom is beyond human ingenuity. And it's a fascinating chapter, isn't it? If you were raised as I was in the government schools, then you really marvel at this because obviously nobody that lived uh, 2,000 years before Christ had this kind of intelligence. (laughs) Um, But notice what he asserts immediately in the first two verses. Surely there is a mine for silver, a place where they refine gold, Iron is taken from the dust, and copper is smelted from rock. This is his introductory statement of what he's going to develop now with respect to uh, man's ingenuity. It all has to do with man's search after precious metals and uh, fine things for building and for the economy. Now, this is amazing that sometimes between Abraham and Moses... Uh, This kind of exercise is going on. But if you reflect back to Genesis chapter 4, just about five generations from Adam, we see that already metallurgy had been developed. And so in Genesis 4, as describes there the children of Lamech, it says in verse 22, as for Zillah, she gave birth to Tubal-Cain, the forger of of all implements of bronze, which is an alloy, and iron, which is mined from rocks. So there, within the lifetime of Adam, you see, Adam was made with such brilliance as the image of God that even when he fell into sin and, and was becoming more and more spiritually, spiritually, blind, spiritually blind initially, and then God began to take that away, but his intellect was so keen, and these descendants were so keen. And so culture developed from day one. That's part of why, you know, the garden is described as having precious gold uh, in it. It's that day one. 
our God that caused culture to develop. So we see here now, in, um, around 2000 or so before, years before Christ, that uh, people were aware not only of the value of gold, which throughout history has been the number one commodity for purchase, silver, a very regular commodity for purchase, as well as the usefulness of iron and copper. So what he does after having established the reality that these are very expensive things in the culture and very necessary, he goes in the next four verses to discuss mining. First, briefly, or, or generally, verse 4, he, he sinks a shaft far from habitation, forgotten by the... In other words, he's dung deep vertical tunnels. And, and boys, these miners, look at the end of verse 4, are hanging on swings as they go down these deep tunnels, and they're picking away at rock, getting gold and silver and copper and iron out of the rock. He makes a contrast in verse 5, the, the earth, from it comes food. So above the earth, the earth produces food. Underneath, it's turned up as fire, and the fire would just be the light falling upon these precious stones. Because the rocks are sources of sapphires, this brilliant blue gem. Its dust contains gold. So first, it's just very briefly, what men have done, they've sunk shafts, they hang on ropes, they go down the shafts, and they pick away at the rock, and they're mining this material, and bringing it up, and as we see there in verse 1, also refining uh, the material so it's useful in the culture. So it's, it's a brilliant exercise of human ingenuity. Uh, he shows that it, it surpasses everything else in creation. Verses 7 and 8, the path no bird of prey knows, nor has the falcon's eye caught sight of. It's not something that they could observe the animals and, and discover this stuff. And, and the keenest sighted animals like birds of prey and vultures and falcons they can't spy it because it's, it's under the ground. And, of course, the, the lion, the proud beast, he has not even walked on it. He's lord of the jungle. Um, but he has no cognizance. And there's nothing by observing the behavior of a lion or of a bird for them to understand what was under the ground. I want you to think about this because it's, it's quite amazing in what God does uh, in the lives of men and women. Now look at a parallel. And actually, it's another 28, Isaiah chapter 28. As Job himself makes the contrast of from the earth comes food and underneath it turns up as fire. In Isaiah 28, verse 23, Isaiah 28, 23, Give ear and hear my voice. Listen and hear my words. Does the farmer plow continually to plant seed? Does he continually turn and harrow the ground? Does he not level its surface, sow dill, a scatter cumin, and plant wheat and rose, barley in its place, rye within its area? You see, there's all these different ways you develop these crops. For his God instructs him and teaches him properly. For dill's not threshed with a threshing sledge, nor is the cartwheel driven over cumin. But dill is beaten out with a rod and cumin with a club. Grain for bread is crushed. Indeed, he does not continue to thresh it forever because the wheel of his cart and his horses eventually damage it. He does not thresh it longer. This also comes from the Lord of hosts who made his counsel wonderful and his wisdom great. So here we see in chapter 28 that 
that uh, the Holy Spirit illustrates this unsearchable wisdom of God from farming. But, but how did men learn to do that? Well, by trial and error, by experimentation. But what Isaiah is teaching us is the Spirit of Christ was working, or God the Son working in them, and he calls it revelation. Do you see that? Uh, there in, um, um, toward the end of that discussion, he says, in verse 26, his God instructs and teaches him properly. This is what we call general revelation. And it's glorious, you see, that God in his mercy, having given the responsibility to his image bearers to subdue the creation, did not take away the ability to do that in the fall. But has continued to allow men, not just righteous men and women, but even the wicked, to develop the great culture of farming and animal husbandry as a manifestation of his own wisdom, as well as here, the great culture of mining as a further manifestation of the wisdom of God. And we should revel in the reality of what God does for us and be thankful for these things. How many of us have had different kinds of sicknesses this year? Cataracts removed and other things that could have killed us or crippled us or made us blind. And because of God's mercy in general revelation, we are at a place in society that uh, we have so many treatments now for, for these things. And we should bless God for that because God is the one who wasn't through observing the animals. There was no natural reason. You see that. There was no natural reason. Is there why man would go under the ground and look for precious stones? <laughs> no, it was the work of the Holy Spirit in our forefathers. He then develops a bit more fully some of the remarkable things of their mining in verses 9 through 11. He puts his hand on the flint, the hardest and sharpest of stones, overturns mountains at the base. They didn't have dynamite. Not only did they go down, they went in and cut away rock. But then they made channels through the rock because they would come to underground water. And they would channel that water away from the precious stones, so its eye sees everything precious. Dams up the streams from flowing will build underground dams to stop the water so he can mine a particular area. And what is hidden he brings to light by bringing in the light into that shaft and into those underground caverns. That's an amazing description. And with all of our modern technology, the little bit I know about mining is not greatly different today. <laughs> it's the same things are going on. They hew tunnels and they build dams and they make channels in order to get the ore from the earth. But now notice the rhetorical question in verse 12. But where can wisdom be found? Where's the place of understanding? You see, it was not under the earth. It was not the result of man's ingenuity as brilliant and bright uh, as he was. No, it was found only in one place, in an unsearchable place, the only place that why is answered, and that is in the Lord God. And we consider all of the advances of modern science, all the attempts to uh, answer um, the question, we recognize the answer only is in God. Wisdom. What is wisdom? You see, what this text shows us, that wisdom is different from 
knowledge. The natural man has much knowledge. We've just spoken about that briefly. But knowledge is not wisdom, you see. Wisdom here is parallel with understanding. Wisdom is the attribute that God's image bearers have as well, but it's perfect and eternal in him to know what needs to be done and how to do it in order always to accomplish God's glorious purposes. What needs to be done and how to do it in order to accomplish God's glorious purposes. And that cannot be discovered by the natural man. That cannot be discovered in all of uh, creation with all of man's ingenuity. And it should cause us to exult in a God who defines himself as the only wise God, the God who is the embodiment of wisdom. And it's God's wisdom that is the answer to all the whys of life. But Job continues. Not only can God's wisdom not be gotten by man's ingenuity, it cannot be gotten through man's natural grasp. Verses 13 through 22. In, verses, in verse 13, he simply says that man doesn't have the foggiest notion about wisdom. Does not know its value. You know, he thinks he's attained great things and uh, in all of his intellectual developments and in all of his culture. And how many great men have you known or read of, biographies or in the paper, that their lives are a mess, really, aren't they a big mess? Think of Howard Hughes. He could invent all kinds of things and manage the economy, and the man was an absolute mess. He lived locked up in a flat apartment, afraid of germs. And so it is. Their families are messes, two or three, four, five, six wives, multiple children from all of these relationships, um, unable to get along with other people. They're brilliant, but they don't have the foggiest notion what they're missing. They do not know the value of wisdom. And, and they cannot grasp it, you see. It's not found. In other words, in the human sphere, in the development of culture, as in mining, as in intellectual pursuits, it cannot be found. In fact, man does not even know its value. He thinks he's found all these valuable things. He has all this gold and, and all this silver. And he doesn't know the value of wisdom. The littlest child here in the covenant, born again, knows more the value of wisdom than the great men and women of the earth. Because you see, it's not found in the land of the living. Just as it's not found in ingenuity, it cannot ever be found in the development of any culture, regardless of how advanced that culture is. And so, personification, the, the deep says, well, it's not in me. You know, mariners can sail the ocean, and, and there's all these treasures in the ocean, but no wisdom. The sea says, it's not with me. Now, it points out that not only can it not be found by ingenuity, but it can't be purchased. Verses 15 through 19, pure gold cannot be given in exchange for it, nor can silver be weighed as its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir. 
Its precious onyx or sapphire, gold or glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for articles of fine gold. Coral and crystal are not to be mentioned, and the acquisition of wisdom is above that of pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. A bit redundant, isn't it? Notice in these five verses, he talks about gold four times because it is the number one commodity. It's the greatest measure of wealth. And he uses different figures. So pure gold in verse 15. Verse 16, the gold of Ophir was the finest gold known in those days. Again, he talks about gold in, in verse 17, that gold or crystal are not equal to this wisdom. And then he concludes the whole thing is that it cannot be valued in pure gold. And then he heaps all these other things in there as well. And so the uh, uh, various colored onyx stone, the blue sapphire, crystal glass, the yellow topaz of Ethiopia, coral, which was at that time a matter of exchange, and different types of crystal. None of it by itself, and all of it put together, never can buy wisdom. You see, wisdom cannot be purchased. Not only does a man not appreciate it, but if he thinks he can go buy it with his life coaches, parents, you read of parents who start their children in preschool paying hundreds of thousands of dollars to get them into Harvard or Yale, Education, divorce from the fear of God, it's absolutely useless in terms of the development of human character. They think they can buy wisdom for their children, and they can't. No, it is beyond man's ability to grasp it, to appreciate it, to value it. Solomon says in Proverbs 3, How blessed is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. For a prophet is better than the prophet of silver, her gain than fine gold. She's more precious than jewels, and nothing you desire can compare to her. Nothing. You think what you want above everything else in this world, and it cannot compare to God's wisdom. So he comes back to his rhetorical question, repeats it in verse 20. Where then does wisdom come from? Where is the place of understanding? It cannot be found in the mines. It's not in the depth of the sea. It cannot be purchased. No, he says in verse 21, thus it's hidden from the eyes of all people, all creatures, concealed from the birds of sky who have great visual acuity. Even Abaddon and death, hell, and the demons that are there can say, well, we've heard about it. But obviously their wisdom is only a dark, black, evil wisdom. No, it's beyond this creation is what we're being told in these verses. Remember we saw in chapter 27 that hell is part of God's creation. It's beyond all of creation is what he's saying in these two verses. It cannot be had here. It is beyond man's ingenuity. It's beyond man's natural grasp. It's found in God and in God alone. And that's a glorious reality, you see. For it's one of the distinguishing marks of our beloved triune God, that he is the all-wise God. And as we'll see tonight, this attribute joined with other attributes is but a slight manifestation of his work, his decree, 
the answer to the why is so important. But two things as we wrap this up, as we recognize that God's wisdom is not got by man's ingenuity or can be got by man's natural grasp. First, I want to remind you is that we have two, well, I want to remind you we have two great things over Job, and I've often mentioned this, so you should know them by now. The first one is that we live under the full light of the Lord Jesus Christ. Job knew the Savior. He testifies to that in Job chapter 19. Abraham knew and longed to see his day. But we live now in the noonday of the most remarkable event in all of human history. And that is the incarnation. The most glorious act of God's wisdom. You see, everything in history has had moved toward that point. From the fall of Adam decreed to uh, all of the prophets and all of the prophecies and all the unfolding and, and the church of God and the covenant all coming to what Paul calls this undoubted mystery. God, the second person of the Godhead, took to himself a human nature. So as the God-man, he would obey the law of God perfectly, which we had to do or we could not be saved. And then he paid the penalty of our law-breaking because that too had to be paid if we were to be saved. He did that so God could be just and justifier of those who have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So the, the incarnation itself is a mystery. How, how in the world God can take to himself a human nature and be this person, this God-man? But the great wisdom of it all is there at Calvary is the most remarkable manifestation of God's wisdom that ever will be. Because only in that event was every moral attribute of God manifested at one time. We'll see God's righteousness, his justice, his wrath in hell, his mercy and grace and compassion in heaven and they won't meet. They only met one place. They met on Calvary. Calvary was this great cosmic magnifying glass. There, as the, uh, as the Son of God, who would obey the law of God perfectly, cries out in a hellish dereliction, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Every attribute of God in that act. That we and angels for all eternity will marvel at the wisdom of God. And because of this, we read in Colossians that Jesus Christ is the treasure chest of all wisdom. He who is the wisdom of God has come now to manifest the wisdom of God. And as our prophet, he's not just our priest. You understand he did this, that you might be saved from your sins. And I, I, I challenge every one of you here this morning as I've talked about this most glorious event of Calvary that you look in your own conscience and are you trusting in Jesus Christ alone to save you from your sins? Because apart from that, there's no salvation. But it's our prophet. And as we had in our catechism that Christ executes the office of a prophet by revealing to us by his word and spirit the will of God for our salvation. So now he who is the wisdom of God is the agent Communicating wisdom to us. And so Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.31 that in him is wisdom from God. He's our wisdom. 
Which leads us to the second thing that we have that Job didn't have, and that is the completed scripture. Job knew what we would know from the book of Genesis, at least up to some part of the patriarchs. He knew uh, the revelation had been passed on from Adam down to, to the fathers. He himself would have had visions and communication from God. He, he knew God's revelation to some degree, but it was all piecemeal and surely was not able to even get behind the why. And you see, because of the word of God, we get behind the why. Because he who did not spare his own son, will he not also with him freely give you all things? So all things work together for good to those that love God and are called according to his purpose. And so we've got a mind that is better than the greatest minds of the world and has more precious value and, and gems in it than all the minds of mankind. Do you mind the word of God? We read of the great difficulty that these men went to to get some gold out of the earth and continue to do that. Are you willing to sacrifice to get the gold out of God's word? Are you willing to get up 15 minutes earlier in the morning so you really have time to begin to prayerfully meditate on God's word? Many of you men are in seminary, and we heard a very good charge from Mr. Colvin Friday night. Are you willing to pay the price? Are you willing to learn the Greek and Hebrew so that you can become master miners of God's holy word and display his wisdom to the people to whom you will minister? May God cause each one of us to revel in the reality of what we have. And then seek through the Lord Jesus Christ the wisdom of God in Scripture. We'll come back to that tonight and unpack that more fully. Let us pray. O Holy One, we bless your name and we thank you that you indeed are the Holy One who has revealed himself to us in Christ and in your word. And you, Lord, who are all wisdom, have promised us wisdom in Christ. And we pray that we will yearn for it, that we will search the scriptures, and that you yourself will speak to us from these scriptures. Let us revel in you, holy God. Let us marvel at your wisdom. Let us accept the unanswered wise and rest in you. For Christ's sake, we ask this. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.